Welcome to the award-winning personal computer show. Today is Wednesday, September the 28th, 2022. I'm Hank Key and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. NASA calls off Artemis 1 launch as Hurricane Eon threatens Florida. NASA has canceled yet another launch attempt of its mega moon rocket. One of the main factors involved in making a final decision is forecasted winds. If the National Hurricane Center, Space Force, forecasters, and other officials see the potential for peak gusts of 74 knots, that's about 85 miles per hour, Teams will have to roll back to the VAB, the Vehicle Assembly Building. That process will take about three days. A backup window is available at 2.52 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Sunday, October the 2nd. A backup window is available at 2.52 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Sunday, October 2nd. But due to the hurricane that's heading for the launch site, Hurricane Ian has been gaining its strength since its formation in the Southern Caribbean on Friday, September the 23rd. Forecasters projected that the storm will pass over western Cuba before reaching Florida by the middle of the week, at which time it could reach Category 4 intensity with wind speeds up to 130 to 156 miles per hour. That's 209 to 251 kilometers per hour, according to the National Hurricane Center. And the opportunity will not be available until next week. Beyond that, the next opportunity to fly won't come until October the 17th and closes again after October the 31st. The Space Force Agency is responsible for public safety. It must sign off on the system's batteries every 25 days. The current certification expired earlier this month, and recertification work can only be done inside the Vehicle Assembly Building. The Space Force, which oversees launch safety, gave NASA a waiver to go forward with attempts Tuesday and October 2nd. The spacecraft will be rolled back yet again to protect it from oncoming storm. Hurricane Ian, which grew from a tropical storm and is projected to continue strengthening before it hits Florida's Gulf Coast by Thursday, that's September the 29th, caused NASA to delay its Artemis I mission for the third time in the last month. The rocket was scheduled for its latest attempted launch on Tuesday, September the 27th. Two previous launch attempts had been scrubbed due to technical issues, including a hydrogen leak and a suspected faulty temperature sensor inside one of the rocket's core stage engines. Lightning strikes Artemis 1's mission's Meg Moon rocket launch pad during test. With the hurricane on the way, 
NASA executive decided to roll back the rocket to the safety of the Kennedy Space Center's Vehicle Assembly Building, delaying its launch by another two weeks. The rocket's rollback will preclude it from blasting off during the current launch window, which closes on October 4th. After that date, the next window will open from October 17th to October 31st. The giant Artemis I rocket, consisting of the six-person Orion capsule perched atop the 30-story space launch system, Megamoon rocket has been preparing to embark on the first of two test journeys that will pave the way for human moon landing in 2026, marking humanity's return to the moon for the first time since 1972 and signaling NASA's intent to establish a long-term presence there. The rocket is the most powerful ever built by NASA. Orion is planned to make two flybys of the moon 62 miles that's 100 kilometers, above the lunar surface, zipping as far out as 40,000 miles or 64,000 kilometers beyond the moon before returning to Earth 38 days after launch. Stored aboard Orion are three mannequins that NASA will use to test radiation and heat levels during the flight. A Snoopy soft toy is also long for the ride, floating around inside the capsule as a zero-gravity indicator. The flight will be followed by Artemis II and Artemis III missions in 2024 and 2025, or possibly slipping to 2026, respectively. Artemis II will make the same journey as Artemis I, but with a four-person human crew, and Artemis III will send the first women and first person of color to land on the moon's south pole. Well, Here's hope we get better luck and we'll get Artemis 1 up and flying away. Besides NASA being concerned about Artemis 1's launch date, NASA has another concern. And I was a little surprised by the news that NASA is concerned that astronauts will get pregnant in space. NASA's official policy forbids sex and conception in space. One space medicine expert said it was for good reasons. The particular reason, according to the report from NASA, is concerned that someone will suffer an unintended pregnancy in space, opening up the messiest possible questions around reproductive health and the well-being of an unborn fetus in an off-world environment. That's with good reason. According to the report, though, experiments have seen limited success with the offspring of invertebrates and insects. Mammals have yet to conceive babies in space that would be able to survive on Earth. As far as we know, though, human pregnancy is absolutely possible. Anatomically and biologically speaking, Baylor space medicine expert Jenna Fogarty said that there are no known impediments to human conception in space. But there are serious concerns, she said, that the microgravity and radiation could mess up or even kill a fetus. As a point of fact, we don't even know that much about how space affects grown human bodies, and what little we do know suggests that overall, space is pretty hostile to human health. To learn more, though, science will have to figure out more about sex in space. While there's no official record of sexual activity, sexual activity off-world, There are some indicators as to how it may go, 
and those inklings are, shall we say, intriguing. Former NASA astronaut Mike Mullaney has gone on record saying that during missions, he would wake up to erections that could have drilled through kryptonite. Kinsey Institute researcher and space sexologist Simon Dubay reported this. While there are concerns about microgravity reducing blood flow, Mullaney's zero-gravity morning wood antidote suggests that it may actually aid sex. The report also notes that Jonathan Miller, a longtime NASA engineer who's worked with the agency for over 30 years, once joked about the peculiar difficulties of having sex where gravity is not present. Now, how would he know? Sex in space is overrated, Miller joked in response to a query. For one thing, the number of positions is cut in half, and then you have to add in tie-downs and restraints. Well, on second thought, never mind. I wonder how many people would volunteer for a sex experiment in space when NASA approves of learning more about it. I think the uh, people lining up uh, to volunteer for this is a very long line. A shift in Jupiter's orbit could have a bizarre impact on Earth. Earth and every other planet within our solar system that we know of orbits the Sun. Beyond our small region of the universe, planets everywhere orbit their stars. Even tiny changes in these orbits can change things drastically, too. Now a new study says a shift in Jupiter's orbit could make parts of Earth more livable by raising the temperature of our most frigid zones. A shift in Jupiter's orbit could make drastic changes to Earth's livability. Earth is often considered the defining bar for a habitable planet. As such, finding planets like it has become a primary goal for many scientists. And we may have even discovered an inhabitable exoplanet that the scientists plan to look at deeper with a James Webb telescope. A new study has astronomers looking closer to home, with some saying a shift in Jupiter's orbit could drastically affect Earth. The new study, which was published by the Astronomical Journal, suggests that a certain shift in the orbit of our solar system's largest planet follows could make parts of the Earth more livable. This shift, they say, would have to make Jupiter's orbit more flattened or eccentric. If that happens, the planet would come closer to Earth, which would also cause changes in our planet's orbit. As the largest planet in the solar system has a massive gravitational pull, that is why, if the orbit changed but it stayed in the same position, Earth's ability to support life could actually improve. This shift in Jupiter's orbit would cause the Earth's orbit to carry it closer to the Sun at specific points. During this time, those colder regions of our planet would heat up to livable ranges. That means places like Antarctica and the Arctic would see massive changes to the temperature and other very cold locations worldwide would too. Alternatively, it would also probably mean warmer temperatures in places where the heat already swelters, which could lead to some other complications. On the other side of things, though, the researchers say that a small shift in Jupiter's orbit the wrong way, if it were to move closer to the Sun, would lead to terrible consequences for the Earth. It would lead to the tilting of the Earth, 
which would cause less sunlight to reach the planet. This would then lead to temperature dropping in more places, possibly even sending some regions into sub-zero ranges. Ultimately, this research is coming at an invaluable time, with NASA sharing James Webb's first images and scientists looking deeper into the early universe. There's so much we don't fully understand about our universe. This research, along with other studies like this, could help us find habitable planets and understand more about what conditions planets need to properly meet to support life. And of course, with all these changes, it affects our climate, and there will be climate change due to nature, and civilization won't be able to manage nature, but just have to learn how to live with it. Bosses are worried that disconnected workers will refuel the Great Resignation. Executives today are facing a conundrum. After two years and some change of working from home, their employees feel increasingly disconnected from their colleagues and the culture that leaders say they work so hard to cultivate. Hybrid work as currently constructed has certainly taken a bite out of many companies' office culture. Yet at the same time, return-to-office policies have failed for the most part. Office occupancy has hovered somewhere just below 50% for some time. And even when workers do work at the office, they're greeted by quiet cubicles and deserted water coolers. So what's the boss to do? Two out of three executives fear the employees will quit for another job where they feel more connected finds a recent survey of 1,600 remote and hybrid employees. Three-fourths of executives believe their staff would leave even if it meant making major sacrifices like taking a pay cut or going part-time. The fear, it seems, is founded. The same survey revealed that feeling disconnected is the top reason workers gave for why they would leave. The number of people who quit jobs in July, the latest available data, was little change at 4.2 million. More than 30% of remote and hybrid workers reported feeling lonely. Most of those workers said they don't feel their co-workers care about them. So what's the missing link? Connection. Executives and their employees can actually agree on what's ailing workers amid the return to office fervor. The office occupancy did jump recently to 47.5%, from the 43% that characterized much of the summer. The transition to remote work has been immensely challenging for businesses and employees. However, the findings revealed that most executives didn't fully grasp just how much this shift would affect their workforce. Doug Campbelljohn, founder and CEO of Airspeed, said in a statement, So many people report feeling lonely, disengaged, and detached from their co-workers and their company. We're at a critical turning point now where leaders need to make connection a priority or they'll risk losing their best employees at a time when most can't afford to do so. More than 70% of employees said they aren't interacting as much as they wish while working remote. 81% said they liked using technologies like Slack to connect with their co-workers, while nearly 60% said they aren't satisfied with the current level of connection, and 24% have no tools to socialize while remote. Such data coming out of the work-from-anywhere era is forcing companies and their leaders to scramble for a grasp 
on what the outcomes will be and how best to move forward. Making sure employees feel connected is their biggest challenge right now. The surveyed executives reported that nearly 90% of them said that improving culture and connection in a hybrid work world is one of their top priorities this year. Today's workers expect much more than just a competitive salary and good benefits. They want to feel a true sense of belonging and community. Although building connection in the age of isolation is no easy feat, the right technologies can play a critical role in bringing this vision to life. New survey explains why employers polled says that they're prepared to offer flexible scheduling with 60% saying they would offer hybrid options to employees disinclined to return to in-person work. The new survey said that over 10% of business leaders admitted using a return to the office mandate to terminate employees without having to lay them off. As the pandemic takes a backseat with social distancing norms, no longer a compulsion in outdoor settings, a new survey states that return to office mandates may be back in vogue and causing a different kind of scare. Only this time, almost 80% of remote workers believe their employers would fire them if they said no to a return to office mandate, according to the Bloomberg News report. An interesting observation pointed out by a survey of 800 workers and 200 business leaders by Oslash, a productivity software company, stated that the fears of the employees may not be unfounded as nearly 60% of employers said they'd be content with employees resigning rather than returning to the office. Employees reluctant to give up autonomy. Notably, big-name companies like Apple and Peloton Interactive Inc. are leading the charge, setting Labor Day as their latest deadline for corporate employees to be in the office at least three days a week, noting that the push has driven a wedge between workers and their bosses, with many rank-and-file employees reluctant to give up the flexibility and autonomy they enjoyed during the pandemic, highlighted the Bloomberg News report. The curious stories of employees' resistance are well-documented on social media platforms. Popular posts this month describing a worker replying or to a company-wide message with simply no. Meanwhile, just last week, the New York Times offered employees branded lunchboxes to welcome them back to the office, even as the gesture fell flat as more than 1,200 pledged to work from home to protest the mandated return, and to pressure the company to negotiate with the union over returning to the building. According to the Oslash survey, for employers who want to sweeten the deal, more money, flexible scheduling, and free food were some of the most popular incentives workers said would lure the employees back to the office. Alternatively, four out of five employees would be happy to take a pay cut to continue working from home, with Gen Z workers the most willing to do so, the report said. Another interesting highlight from the survey stated that for those employees refusing to return to office, more than one-third of the employers see remote workers as more expendable than those on site. 
while employers polled said that they're prepared to offer flexible scheduling, with 60% saying they would offer hybrid options to employees disinclined to return to in-person work, even as 20% said they would continue to let their employees work remotely if challenged. Almost the same portion said they would fire workers who would refuse to return to their desk, making outright refusal a risky proposition. Perhaps the most important observation by the survey notes that over 10% of business leaders admitted using a return-to-the-office mandate to terminate employees without having to lay them off. The Federal Trade Commission issues a crackdown warning over exploiting gig workers. The agency's message is aimed at large companies, but if you use gig workers, be aware of the agency's new priorities. The Federal Trade Commission is about to ramp up enforcement against businesses that exploit gig workers. The agency announced in a 17-page policy statement that it will start targeting companies who take advantage of gig workers, especially those who participate in unfair, deceptive, or anti-competitive practices. That include things like employee misclassification and unfavorable contracts to wage-fixing and concentrated markets. That's not necessarily welcome news for some businesses. Indeed, FTC Chair Lena Khan has been criticized by business groups about the agency's purported overreach. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce sued the FTC in July, accusing the agency of a lack of accountability and arguing that the agency is pursuing an aggressive agenda with far-reaching implications for American businesses and the economy. Khan is pressing ahead, though. Among the agency's prime targets are companies that misclassify workers as independent contractors when they are actually employees. Contractors receive fewer benefits compared with full-time staff employees, including with health insurance and paid time off. It's a cost-saving tactic, but a violation of both federal and state law, and it can get expensive for those that get caught. Take the case of Uber, who recently settled for $8.4 million in one case of worker miscalculation claims. The FTC position is that gig workers are not second-class employees, no matter how gig companies choose to classify them. Gig workers are consumers entitled to protection under the laws we enforce. Samuel Levine, director of FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection, said in a statement, We are fully committed to coordinating our consumer protection and competition enforcement efforts within the FTC, as well as working with other agencies across the government to ensure gig workers are treated fairly. While the exploitation of gig workers is often associated with larger companies, such as Uber and DoorDash, any company employing gig workers should be aware of the FTC's expanding enforcement priorities. The agency did not single out any company, but in her statement, FTC Commissioner Rebecca Slaughter referenced a recent lawsuit against Amazon that resulted in the agency recovering more than $60 million to pay back Amazon flex drivers who did not receive their tips. Gig workers continue to be huge contributors to nation GDP. 16% of Americans have reportedly earned money by participating in the gig economy. 
in the gig economy the FTC cites. A survey from MasterCard estimates that the gig economy will spur $455 billion in yearly sales come 2023. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about IT and the workplace, or as we have for the last couple of weeks, a common item that is prevalent in IT, but also across the entire workplace. And there's some important things that come along with this. Uh, And I want to talk about quiet quitting uh, for this week and next week, because there are things that that can be done. There are things that can get us on track, and we need to we need to think about these both from a perspective of what do we want from the employer perspective, what do we want out of our workers, but also what do workers want out of our employers? And some of the things I'm going to say this week are are, are to hopefully spur ideas in your mind, the phrases that might help drive the conversation forward. This quiet quitting concept where we talk about, uh, you know, uh, the work to rule or malicious compliance. And maybe it isn't so much malicious compliance, it's Dialing it back and maintaining a work-life balance that we've had from due to the pandemic, due to just some of the rewards we've seen in our lives over the course of the last two years, and let's let's find the the new balance point for moving forward. I mean, this is this is what's going on. We're trying to figure out how has work changed, how will work change. So one of the things we need to think about is the drivers for quiet quitting. So, yes, I have already talked about that work-life balance. All right, you know, it, we, we, can, we can talk about this for hours on end, all of the different things that we're realizing come from working from home. There's no more, okay, I don't have to get an expensive suit or maintain a bunch of expensive suits, which includes dry cleaning. I don't have to go out to lunch with, with everybody at $20, roughly, maybe $15 per person. I can make a $2 lunch at home. With family, there's there's so much there with work-life balance. I mean, we can go on for a while on this one. And then there's the idea of fair compensation and incentives. People have been, there. you know, I'm, I'm talking to different people where, okay, in, during the pandemic, no raises came. But inflation has really, over the course of three years, it's nearly 20%. Maybe it's three and a half years. But the uh, from 2019 through the pandemic to now, it's roughly 20% inflation. And some companies have not, they they said, we're waiting until the end of the pandemic. We're waiting to see if we survive. And then there's other things. There's learning, both on the job, but uh, learning options that lead towards career advancement. Maybe not the classes your employer wants you to take, but just overall education, but even the idea of career advancement. And then there's there's this lack of recognition 
by your employer or maybe a lack of visibility. Not necessarily your your boss going, hey, why aren't you getting anything done? But more a matter of, hey, I, I didn't know that you fixed this. I didn't know that you drove this. I didn't know that you resolved this. There's a lot of different things. But let's 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 go even further into the the harder items. The toxic work culture. Now, this can be management, this can be peers, this can be just a perception of a difference in that work-life balance. Well, Johnny gets to work from home all the time. Why do I have to come into the office all the time? Now, there's also the idea of just simply bad bosses. Not necessarily toxic bosses, like I just talked about toxic work culture, but not good bosses either. And then there's, you know, I mean, this that can come with destructive criticism, that can come with all kinds of different problems there. But there's also the idea of excessive working hours or these these hustle cultures, the culture which drives people far, far, far beyond what we've grown accustomed to with the work-life balance. In everything I've said, these are things that are in the power of, for the employer to fix. It doesn't mean they have to fix everything, but they're in the power for the employer to fix. I know earlier I said that, you know, this this quiet quitting was more of an employee thing, or at least I indicated that, but let's explore this again. Work-life balance. The employer can resolve that. Compensation and incentives. Yes, that's an employer situation. Maybe it's to some extent there's an employee expectations but you have to meet your employee with their expectations, especially if they can solve those expectations elsewhere. There's learning and career advancement opportunities. Where does that come from? Yeah, employer. Lack of recognition, lack of visibility, toxic work cultures, bad bosses, destructive criticism, excessive work hours, not telling people, hey, it's the end of the day, just chill All of these are within the power of the employer to resolve. People have realized that slaving away, going for for days where you're 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 involved with eight hours, well nine hours after lunch, plus uh, ten hours after commute or eleven hours of commute. How much time are you spending all in the quest for? A couple more pennies. Yeah, we've got to we've got to solve some of these things. Next week, I'm going to provide some insight for both sides as we close this out. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Integrating new members into a remote team. Three years deep into the work from home transformation. It's becoming increasingly clear that remote work is excellent for some things and lousy for others. If you're doing heads-down execution, study after study shows, remote work can't be beat. But if you're attempting creative collaboration or communicating culture and unwritten rules to new employees, remote work poses stiff challenges. How do you overcome these challenges? Microsoft has extensive data to help with at least one of them. As the company's CEO, 
Satya Nadella explained, Microsoft hired 50,000 people during the pandemic. Here's the number one lesson CEO Satya Nadella learned about remote onboarding new employees when your team isn't physically together. Nadella stresses that one factor matters above all. It's not technology or systems or culture. It's a very hands-on manager. You might think that when you're working at a distance, technology trumps all. Wikis and webinars make up for a lack of office cooler knowledge transfer, and you're certainly not going to get much done if you can't log on to the company server or access Zoom. But while certain base level of tech readiness is essential to a smooth onboarding process, Microsoft found it wasn't tech that mattered most, but people. Nardella explains the biggest thing that we found is that direct connection to your immediate manager. Previously, people went for the onboarding week or day, and there were lots of other people who sort of helped you with many things. Now the full-service concierge is your manager. Unless your manager takes responsibility for shepherding you through the entire process, trust, cultural understanding, and personal connections are hard to build. What does that mean in practice? Managers should hold new hires' hands, though everything from, hey, are all the benefits provisioned? Are you having any challenges with any of the paperwork? To making the introduction to all the people who are needed both inside the organization as well as outside the organization. Nadella offers the example of one very successful leader at Microsoft who took care to introduce a new employee to all the people personally, like he would in fact set up the team's core and make the introduction and then leave the team's core so that then she could actually have the one-on-one with the person. Nadella says you can't scrimp on the human touch. That might sound like a lot of work to some leaders out there, but Nadella claims it's the only way to effectively create a strong bond between an existing team and a new member. If you can't meet in person, the approach might be time and resource intensive. But Nadella says we actually have to put our money where our mouth is and focus on building that managerial capability. The lesson here for leaders is neither complicated nor newfangled. You don't necessarily need creative strategies or cutting-edge tech to do remote onboarding well. What you do need is managers who really care and who are willing and able to give newcomers personal attention, and lots of it. Turns out when it comes to remote onboarding, there's no substitute for a consistent human helping hand throughout the process. I always thought that being able to make something out of nothing was a human nature trait. An example is to raise a fuss about something minor, trivial, or unimportant, to exaggerate or put too much focus on a minor issue and make it seem like a major one. The law of physical physics deals with matter. Scientists create matter from nothing in groundbreaking experiment. We've probably all heard the phrase, you can't make something from nothing. But in reality, the physics of our universe isn't that cut and dry. In fact, scientists have spent decades trying to force matter from absolutely nothing. And now they managed to prove that a theory first shared 70 years ago was correct, and we really can create matter out of absolutely nothing. The universe is made up of several conservation laws. These laws govern energy, charge, momentum, 
and so on down the list. In the quest to fully understand these laws, scientists have spent decades trying to figure out how to create a matter, a feat that is far more complex than it even sounds. We've previously turned matter invisible, but creating it out of nothing is another thing altogether. There are many theories on how to create matter from nothing, especially as quantum physicists have tried to better understand the Big Bang and what could have caused it. We know that colliding two particles in empty space can sometimes cause additional particles to emerge. There are even theories that a strong enough electromagnetic field could create matter and antimatter out of nothing itself. Scientists have long tried to understand how the Big Bang created the universe out of nothing. But managing to do any of these things have always seemed impossible. Still, that hasn't stopped scientists from trying, and now that research seems to have paid off. As Big Think reports, in early 2022, a group of researchers created strong enough electric fields in the laboratory to level the unique properties of a material known as graphene. With these fields, the researchers were able to enable the spontaneous creation of particle-antiparticle pairs from nothing at all. This proved that creating matter from nothing is indeed possible. A theory first proposed by Julian Schwinger, one of the founders of quantum field theory, and with that knowledge, we can hopefully better understand how the universe makes something from nothing. The ARM CPU architecture is now the default CPU in the data center server. The relative affordability and absolute compatibility of the x86 architecture literally transformed the world. By the time the Great Recession was in early 2009, x86 servers accounted for about half of the $10 billion in quarterly sales of systems worldwide. And then the next wave of internet innovation hit, and these non-x86 architectures dwindled ever so slowly still including pretty big IBM mainframe and many computer businesses. Oddly enough, to about $2.5 billion per quarter. But the x86 market rose exponentially to be between $20 billion and $25 billion a quarter in these days. And that is why the x86 architecture counted 99% of the service shipments and 93% of the revenues at its peak in 2019 according to data from IDC. The peak use of the x86 CPU for data center server was three years ago, and now the ARM CPU architecture that is in our tablets and smartphones that took over as the embedded controller of choice from PowerPC, which displaced the Motorola 68000, and all four CPU architectures famously used in Apple machines is pulling the x86 off that peak even as server volumes and revenues keep growing. The good news for Intel is that x86 infrastructure will always command a premium over ARM infrastructure because of that legacy code, mostly running on Windows Server that neither Microsoft nor its customers want to move to the ARM platform. ARM will very quickly become the CPU of choice on the clouds and among the hyperscalers, with a 30% to 40% price performance advantage for equivalent performance for a cloud instance. Why would you deploy on an x86 instance instead of an ARM instance? 
ARM is getting more traction now. Today's infrastructure is custom-built, from SSDs to ACDs to GPUs to video accelerators. The last standard product, the server CPU, will not cut it as a general-purpose product moving forward. Power consumption is already too big of an issue. Hyperscalers spend 30% to 40% of their total cost of ownership, which is an estimate of all direct and indirect costs involved in acquiring and operating a product or system over its lifetime. Lowering the total cost of operation is a key incentive for enterprises to move existing workloads within the cloud. Data rates are advancing too fast. Compute workloads are on a relentless march higher, and they're becoming much more complex. Machine learning and AI are taking over. The future of infrastructure must look nothing like the past. It needs a redefinition. Infrastructure will need to be ubiquitous. The cloud will continue to exist in mega data centers, but our entertainment experiences, transportation, and the way we communicate will be transformed by the build out of the edge. It will be accelerated to support the immersive, visual, tactile, real-time experiences being dreamed up by AR and VR creators. It will be power efficient, and GPUs show us how to get there. At Amazon Web Services, in a recent semiconductor conference, the cloud giant decided to get into CPU design itself, and it explains why others have followed. Alibaba comes to mind with its Yeten homegrown ARM server chip, or have hitched their wagons to other ARM chip designers such as Ampere Computing or High Silicon. This industry is all about volume. Anytime you can do anything at scale, it opens up more R&D investment. You can do more for customers. ARM's mobile volumes are going to feed the R&D investment necessary to produce great server processors. So that is the first thing. The second context point is different. Servers are big, complicated devices that fit on a board. They used to be big, complicated devices that used to be the size of a refrigerator. They're getting smaller, and in fact, what is happening is that the server on a board is more and more is being system on a chip up onto the package. Eventually, this will take time, but eventually a server is going to be a system on a chip and will all come off the board and land on a chip. Servers today are quite a long way from that. What happens in the mobile ends up happening in servers. It just takes a couple of years. Many are convinced that this is definitely going on. Clearly, the rise of the ARM-based smartphone and the ubiquity of the ARM system on a chip has changed all levels of infrastructure. It is about an ARM CPU having equivalent or better performance than an x86 CPU and much lower cost and about the hyperscalers, the cloud builders, and telcos having the option of customizing an ARM CPU design and having their own relationship with a few remaining advanced process chip foundries. This is all about IT organizations controlling their own fate. The x86 on cloud becomes the new mainframe, and the new Unix server, with its pricing locked into a curve from a time gone by. Which brings us to the RISC-V or some people call it the RISC-V. David Patterson is a prolific researcher and inventor. He was the leader of the Berkeley RISC project, which gave birth to open-source BSD Unix. Patterson is also notably vice chair of the board of directors 
for the RISC-V Foundation, which controls the open-source RISC-V instruction set and which has moved its headquarters to Switzerland three years ago to put itself outside of the national governments. If ARM's licensable technology is a parallel to the rise of RISC-UNIX, then perhaps RISC-V, which has an open-source instruction set and logic blocks, is analogous to Linux. ARM may be set up for a good decade long run in the data center, at the edge, and in our client devices, but watch out for RISC-V. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, I, okay, I, I look at your desk every time we talk, and there's there's always weird things that sit around. Uh, okay, off to the, uh, off to. Uh, let's see, that's your that's your right. You've got this gizmo here that's sticking up. What? Uh, yeah, that thing. What is that? It is called cell phone seat. What? And, okay. And uh, it comes on a card like this. And it tells you how wonderful it is, won't block your cup holder, and blah, blah, blah. Now, years ago, in the 70s, I was talking to the VP Sales and Marketing for Tenna Corporation, and they made things like electric antennas and uh, things that added echo to reverb to your radio and all of that. Uh -huh. They also okay. made in-dash replacement radios. And I, I, I believe I was driving something like a Gremlin back then, or maybe a, an, a, <laughs> a, an obscure Dodge. Or... <laughs> I so cannot I said, hey, imagine you that you would have bought a Gremlin, but okay. <laughs> you don't make these for my car. He said, let me tell you something. He said, in radio, you do Chevy, you do Ford, and you're done. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. I've got a 2022 Subaru Forester, and I yeah. love the car. Yeah, And I can understand that it's not one that they tested when they were designing the cell phone seat. Mm -hmm. Cell phone seat has kind of a ring at the bottom that's designed to go into the cell phone and in, into the coffee holder, mm -hmm. the cup holder. And you're supposed to then be able to fit your cup in the middle of it. Then it's got mm -hmm. a strut that comes up and it's got a slotted thing that's supposed to be able to hold your phone in either portrait or landscape mode. Uh, okay. Okay, and if your phone happens to fit it, it's brilliant. If you have uh -oh. the right size cup holder and the cup can fit where this goes in, then it's doing exactly what it should. Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. where this strut is up with a holder rectangle at the top isn't blocking anything, you win, you win, you win. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the case for my Forester. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. All right, go uh, on. When I squeeze these bands at the bottom, and I can squeeze them a lot to get them in the cup holder, yeah, there is no cup you can fit in along with it. Okay, so, all so right. Scratch, scratch one cup holder. All right, yeah, I've, I've got a, I've got a small cup holder. For, yeah. for, actually, both of them are kind of small. Yeah, okay. Uh, the strut that holds the handset up. Uh, it's fine, and if you've got it in the cup holder, it's fairly rigid. You know, it might wobble a little bit, not a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you slide the phone in, mm -hmm. uh, if it's got something like an OtterBox case, and you know what they say about phone cases, there's OtterBox and there's everything else. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, my my Pixel Pro, Pixel 6 Pro, is in an OtterBox case, and you can't tear it out of my hands. 
<laughs> you can have my so OtterBox I- case when you pry it from my... Yes. Okay, go on. <laughs> so when I tried putting the OtterBox case on the Pixel into this thing, mm-hmm. uh, it wouldn't go down far enough. Oh, and, okay. All yeah, right. Uh, that was in portrait mode. In landscape mode... And, and the get, Pixel isn't the largest phone on the market, though. No, it isn't. No, it's okay. And in landscape mode, it went in kind of okay. Not exactly the stability I would trust, but give them credit. It do, you, was do you have your phone handy? Show me. Okay. Here's my phone. Okay. Here's this thing. Radio listeners, close your eyes and imagine. Okay. Here we are. Uh, Okay. Yeah. It, oh, yeah. I can see it's it, it wobbled a little bit when you put it in there, and I can imagine. Okay, you all of a sudden you you you, you turn around. Turn, a, you, yeah, yeah. yeah. All of a sudden the brakes. Yeah. yeah right? Your 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 phone's flying out the window. Yeah. It doesn't <laughs> seem to be too good. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, not my choice. So you'll note this is not in my car. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's sitting on your desk. <laughs> I don't want to say that it's malformed. Yeah. It uh, you know your mileage may vary. It might be perfect for you, but for me, it not only doesn't fit the cup holder, doesn't fit the phone. But if I try to put a phone in it, there are things on the center console I can't see or touch anymore. So hmm. the it, trifecta of bad fit. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that I mean that's an ergonomics thing that we all should be paying attention to whenever we're selecting anything. We need to think yeah. about all of the different aspects of how it's going to literally fit in our life, our and car, how do or you, our home, or whatever it is. Yeah, how do you size something like this before you buy it? Yeah, yeah, I I, I know I don't wander around. Oh, let me measure my cup holder as I walk into Lowe's. Oh, yes, there we go. I measured my cup holder 30 seconds ago, you know, 30 minutes ago. And there's a, there's, what, what's the name on it? Uh, the cell phone seat. Cell phone seat. Yeah, there's a cell yeah. phone seat. It'll work <laughs> yeah. fine. Uh, yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, so, look, the caveat amateur. I'm not saying it's a bad product. If it works for yeah, you, it could yeah, be brilliant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of OtterBox, the mm-hmm. OtterBox case fits in a little clip holster thing yes, with a, yes. a belt clip on the back that also can be an easel stand and swivels and all of that. Yeah. And I was wondering why my phone felt loose and little thing at the end had broken off. Yeah. And, uh, there was no way that I could keep using it in the case with scared the bejabbers out of me. Uh, I want you to know, OtterBox warranty did not hesitate. Yeah, yeah. Their customer service, hurrah. Hurrah, hurrah. Just brilliant company. Yeah. Out of, I've, I've, I've reviewed other cases. You know, some of them are pretty good and, mm-hmm. and, and pretty defensive, but there's only one OtterBox, so, and they're not paying for this. Yeah. <laughs> The only other company that I uh, that I liked better than OtterBox, they're gone. They went Uh-oh. out of business somewhere around I don't know iPhone eight somewhere in there. So and we're what we're about ready to get fourteen. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements: Computer Club meetings in the New York. New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri-State Region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID.
The Westchester PC Users Group meets Thursday, October the 6th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., and the presentation will be the James Webb Telescope, online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, October the 7th. Meeting time is 8 p.m., online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Meeting ID is acgnj.org. The King's Bite Computer Club meets Tuesday, October the 11th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, located at 220 Cadman Plaza West, Brooklyn. For more information, the phone number is 347-278-7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, October the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, nyacc.org for meeting ID. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, October the 15th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. The website is limac.org. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.